When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Eric Yakes. Eric graduated with a double major in finance and economics from Creighton University and three years later earned his CFA charter. He began his career at FTI Consulting in their corporate finance and restructuring group and then moved to Lion Equity Partners, a distressed buyout private equity fund. All the while, he intently followed Bitcoin and its development eventually led him to author the book, The Seventh Property, Bitcoin and the Monetary Revolution. He is currently building a Bitcoin-focused financial business. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate you bringing me on. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today. Okay. Um, so, you know, my background was in finance and economics, and I went to Creighton University. I was a double major in finance and econ there, had the goal of working for a private equity firm, and I started off in management consulting. So I worked for a corporate restructuring group out here in Denver. And, you know, effectively, we are these guys who come in and help companies with you know, any sort of challenging problems that they're dealing with. When things get really bad, we are guys who get brought in to take control of companies when they're bankrupt. Um, and I just wanted to go into that area because it really kind of helped me cut my teeth in the world of finance, where you start to see how things can get really bad. And I spent about two and a half years there. And then I moved to a Denver-based private equity fund where we specialized in buying similar type companies that were in troublesome scenarios. Um, and, you know, throughout that process, I got a pretty clear understanding of all of this malinvestment that exists within our economy and how how different the financial system is than, you know, what it used to be and how much debt is just existing in the system. Because you look at a lot of these companies and a lot of them have been losing cash flow for quite a long period of time. And they're effectively able to sustain themselves by taking on new debt and rolling over their debt continuously. And, and you, and you see just how perverse these incentives have become. And, you know, an interesting example was, and there was a liquidity review at my first company done on Sun Edison, and they were the largest renewable energy company in the world. So, and on this liquidity review, we were looking into the company and like, you know, there, there were a ton of assets that these guys were investing in that were just absolutely useless, just sitting in a warehouse. And they had this whole move fast and break things mentality. Um, 
and they were just plowing money into all these different assets. And it's as quick as you can raise the financing as quickly as you can get it into an asset. And then you move on and hopefully it all works out. And you see just a ton of malinvestment that exists within these companies. And it's much more evident why they end up going bankrupt or having major issues. Um, so all the while I had been, you know, kind of involved in that segment of the economy, and I'd always been a very free market forward thinker. Um, you know, the first economics book my dad gave me when I was 18 was Capitalism and Freedom by Milton, Milton Friedman. And that kind of got me hooked. And I spent a lot of time in college, you know, kind of in undergraduate, when you're getting the Keynesian education, you're getting the other side of it. And it was good because, you know, I, I realized pretty quickly in undergrad, I was spending all this time reading about free market theory outside of school. Had I not done that, I mean, most people are just getting one side of the picture. Right. And, um, and so I'm very lucky that I was introduced to a lot of that information. And after getting both sides, I, I always cling to a lot of that ideology. Um, that being said, it's not that I think, you know, libertarian arguments are in a are perfect in a sense. Every ideology has its flaws. And I don't like to necessarily throw myself completely into that group. But I would say that largely I, you know, conform to those principles. And, you know, always having that in the background um, and then getting into the financial area, seeing this malinvestment in the economy, it was in you know, 2015, when I first heard about Bitcoin, and I rejected it immediately. Um, I said that, you know, this is a uh, speculative asset with no fundamental value. And it really wasn't until 2016, 2017 range when a colleague of mine who had more of a tech background kept pushing the idea on me. And eventually I decided I wanted to look into it. And, um, and once I kind of got through enough you know, different forums and blog posts and things I was finding, random bits and pieces on the internet, and I started to understand like, oh, this is not just some sort of speculative technology people are thinking about. This is actually a solution that people are providing to our banking system. And that didn't mean I thought I was going to invest in it yet, but that got me very interested. And, and I started to read about it a lot more. And what really got me more interested from an investment perspective was once I had this framework shift from looking at Bitcoin as this uh, from the framework of market value. Because, you know, in financial theory, pretty much any form of valuation is boiled down to the idea of discounting present cash flows that some sort of asset is going to give you. And, uh, and I was always applying that framework to Bitcoin and looking at ways of how I could look at it from that perspective of value. And once I made the paradigm shift, to like, oh, no, this is, this is something totally different. This is a new form of money. This isn't some cash flow producing asset. Uh, that's when I started to get a lot deeper into monetary theory, which I had a bit of a background on, but pretty minimal compared to where I ultimately got. And making that paradigm shift was a big piece for me. So getting back to my you know, career, I'd been at you know, this private equity fund for a little bit over a year. Um, and there was, I wanted to make a career shift. I was kind of at a point in my career where I was like, is this it? And, um, and then I always had Bitcoin going on in the back and it hit me in the head one day. I was like, you know what, dude, you should go, you should go look into Bitcoin and maybe do something in that regard. And, um, and, you know, there are other factors as well, but I decided that, you know, I give myself two to three years of runway. Um, the only way that I could really understand a lot of what's going on because I was working pretty long hours um, was just by jumping full on into this thing. So I decided to quit my job towards the end of 2019 and I jumped into the industry and uh, and really quickly realized that 
you know, back then there were, there were books that you could go to, but it's, it was still kind of hard to find the books, even for people that were looking, you really got to get deep into like the Twitter world to find a lot of that back then. And, uh, and even so for me to get this holistic picture in my head of, you know, what do I think about this industry? Is it, uh, where's Bitcoin going to go exactly? Is it going to be Bitcoin? Is it going to be Ethereum? Is it going to be you know, all these other cryptocurrencies? How is that going to build out? Um, in order to me to really form that hypothesis, I had to put together this, uh, you know, this de facto curriculum for myself of a variety of different sources. And, um, and as I went down through that process, I realized very quickly that, you know, I needed to be synthesizing this information and writing it out. And as I started to do that, halfway through that process, I realized I was, I was writing so much that I was like, you know what, um, it, I kind of just should write this, I should turn this into a book. And I wanted to give myself the book that I'd wish I'd been given when I first started this off, instead of having to go down this whole rat rabbit hole, find all these different sources, piece them all together. And, and then I just decided I'll, I'll piece it into a book. And that was kind of the first thing that I decided to do. And I finished that in, um, well, I finished writing it in February of 2021. And then I officially launched it by June of 2021. So, so many people, um, so many people, when they first hear about Bitcoin, um, they wrestle with this concept of how does it hold value? Why, why is this valuable and why will it continue to be valuable 10 years from now. And so when you said that um, nothing made sense when you heard about it in 2015, how is it that you wrestled that problem to the ground and made got it to make sense to you? Could I yep. add on to that question? Because uh, actually the question I was going to ask was almost exactly the same, but I, I wanted to know if you could maybe outline the monetary economics you learned in school by which Bitcoin is kind of useless, and then the superior understanding you've arrived at today, which allows you to better understand the asset. Yep, absolutely. I think that's a good way of framing it too. I haven't asked to frame it in that way. Um, in school, when we cover, you know, I remember covering monetary economics pretty briefly. It was, uh, it was a certain chapter, uh, in one of my textbooks and we gave it a cursory review and it pretty much just said, here are the functions of money. Um, we all know this, we all accept this, the monetary system works how it does. This isn't something we focus on in the curriculum necessarily, but nice to know. And, and one thing that was interesting too, was that one of the primary functions of being a store of value that was defined in those textbooks as uh, having a low volatility, which is very interesting because when you get into a lot of other reading, it's defined in a very different way. It's holding you know value over a longer period of time. So the distinction is holding value over short periods of time versus long periods of time. Right, right. And and that's what's very interesting about what I was taught in college versus what I've read in other sources. Um, and I think that you know arguably both are true in some form, but uh, but ultimately where I got is this is you know this is the first chapter of my book i think that this is the very first question that you need to ask before you can really jump into the idea of why bitcoin's valuable and how it works uh, because most people don't really define the problem first and you start by defining the problem with really explaining fundamentally what money was and when i went down this path um i saw a lot of different sources that would say you know you reference safety's book and in there he refers to money across the different dimensions uh time space and scales and how right. money serves a function within each of those and then you know you'll hear about the functions of money as a store of value as a medium of exchange and as a unit of account 
And then you also hear about these monetary properties and there's scarcity, durability, divisibility, fungibility, you know, there's six total monetary properties. And the first thing I wanted to do is say, okay, so we're all talking about the same thing here, but from different perspectives. And my first chapter is mapping that all together. And basically what I say is we have, you know, Carl Menger it defined money as the most saleable good. And that's kind of at the top. I have this diagram and I say, that's the first thing. It's the most saleable good. It's the good that um, is accepted most easily by everyone throughout the world. And another way of framing that is that it is the good that has the lowest declining marginal utility. So that means that declining marginal utility for anybody listening is when if you were to consume your first pizza, that would taste very good to you because you're very hungry and pizza is good. And then your second pizza that you consume would also taste good. But by the time you get to the fifth pizza, you're probably getting pretty full and it probably doesn't yeah. taste as good to you anymore. So the utility that pizza has given you has declined over time. And that happens with pretty, pretty much any good of consumption. So what really distinguishes money from a lot of other goods is that you really can't get too much more of it. It technically has some degree of declining marginal utility. We can get into the theory behind that of, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness, but relative to all other goods, money decreases the least in marginal utility to people. If you were to ask for any good in the world in an infinite amount, you'd say money because you can trade it for everything else. So it's a very fundamental, fundamentally different class of goods. And that's kind of this idea of money being the most saleable good. And then Safe talks about that saleability characteristic across three different dimensions. So you have time, money moves value throughout time. It's the most saleable across time. It's the most saleable across scales. Um, and that would be the uh, the function of like a unit of account. And then uh, it's the most saleable across distances. You can move it across geographies. And that would be a medium of exchange. So the, there's kind of these three different dimensions that he breaks it out into. And then I map those each of those functions. So time being store of value, um, you know, space being uh, medium of exchange, and then scales being unit of account. And you can say, okay, so that makes sense. We're looking at these functions within the dimension. And it's like, okay, well, what ultimately enables those functions? And so what I did is I took the monetary properties and I mapped them to each function. So I said, okay, what, what are the primary properties that make something a good store of value? And that's something that's durable. It may last over time and something that's scarce. It doesn't drastically increase in supply. Um, and then, you know, I applied a similar logic to the other functions. And, and I think that when you get this idea built out in your head, it, it becomes a lot more clear. It's like, okay, so for something to serve this monetary function, as opposed to the function of market value, which is what the original framework was that I was using, if the function of market value is it provides you some sort of utility. And we, we provide, uh, we would assess value based on the utility that it provides you. The utility that money provides you is harder for people to conceptualize. And, right. and I think the reason for that is just because it's an implicit benefit. So, you know, one way that I kind of describe this in my book is if you were to go to a car dealer um, or if you were to sell your car to another person, um, you could find if you had, you know, 1958 Corvette, you go to some, you know, guy who just loves 1958 Corvettes and you go try to sell that car to him. He's probably going to pay you a good amount for it because he really wants that car. You go to a dealership, right. they're buying it from you, not because they want to use it. They're buying it from you because they're going to hold it and they're going to flip it at a higher value, which is effectively a form of monetary function. So there's an implicit cost that's apparent 
by going to the dealer versus going to the strategic buyer at the end who's actually going to use it. And that implicit cost is kind of like that monetary function where you would ultimately get less for it because they're going to be using it for its utility for trade as opposed to using it for its utility for consumption. That's monetary and premium. Is that that's that idea? Exactly. So the idea of like a monetary premium. Yeah. And um, so, so, well, I mean, kind of it's the monetary premiums kind of used broadly, uh, but it's kind of a way that you can think about it. I think that like really the idea is that money that works better as money saves us time and resources. So the, uh, but another way to think about it is if you were to take money out of the system, how much harder it would be to conduct trade between other people. Right. If right. we just didn't use money anymore, there'd be a lot of time and resources that would be lost, a lot of efficiencies lost, where we couldn't focus our time and efforts on making good products and services, and we had to focus them on moving stuff around and hoping that we can find the right person who wants to buy whatever it is that we have. Because you have to have this coincidence of interest with other people in order to trade without money. So it's all that time and energy spent um, that is eliminated which is an implicit cost through having a very efficient form of money. That's the value proposition that money has. And we can see that reflected in the value of monies that are used. Now, the monies that are used today, they have, there's other reasons, you know, violence is used to implement a lot of those forms of money, but nonetheless, they have a strong value. And, uh, and then certain commodities that are still used in some way as money, those have a monetary value and that's the monetary premium concept. Um, there's a proportion of gold where it's being used as a, um, it has utility for consumption. Gold is used in electronics, for example. If people stopped using gold as a form of money tomorrow, it would still have market value for electronics. Um, but there's also a massive premium for its monetary value that people are using it for as well. So that key distinction in value um, was the first big piece for me understanding how to look at Bitcoin. And then once you get your head around that, it's like, okay, well, if we look at it from this framework, then it's really just an assessment of what the market value of money is. And if something has superior monetary properties, then it's going to eventually eclipse that market value um, because it functions better as a form of money and people ultimately um, you know, choose to adopt it, assuming no constraints, such as things like violence. So I, uh, I wondered if you might say a couple of words about the utility of money, because I think this is one of those things that people just don't think about because it's like a fish in water. It's just part of the surrounding environment, the furniture of your thought. And so you, you don't realize how big a deal it would be to have that subtracted out. And it isn't just what you alluded to, the lack of coincidence of wants, which I think is relatively straightforward. It's not that hard to grapple with it, but there are other things that money allows, or more broadly, a price system allows, which would be impossible without it. And Seyfedina Moose talks a little bit about this. In his book, he thinks that actually having you know hard money in particular changes the time preference of a civilization in ways that ultimately dramatically impact uh, how, how well it flourishes or doesn't. And then Ludwig von Mises famously argued that without a price system, without a common unit of account, certain kinds of economic calculation is literally impossible. You, you can't do it at all. It's not yep. possible to, to weigh different opportunity costs or different plans in terms of their opportunity costs, rather. So I, I wonder, given that you just wrote this book and you've thought a lot about this, if you have a nice pithy summary of what it is money actually does for civilization, why it really matters a lot to get this right. Well, I would say, I mean, to your point about the economic costs, yeah, that's a, that's another major point. And as being a unit of account, it reduces or it enables the ability to make economic calculations. And that's massive because we have to compare value. We have to make decisions. Um, 
And I think a good way of people thinking about that is that if you take away money, the where you have, if we had one form of money in the world, then we'd have one price for every good that exists. If you take right. away money, then you would have that price would be squared by the amount of goods in the world because you have to have different goods priced than everything else. So right. that's how complicated things would get. And um, I, you know, if if I were to give a, I'd say that the you know, what money does is money reduces the implicit cost of transactions within society and allows us to store that over time. And that creates a massive wealth effect. So back in 2003, um, at the Da Vinci Institute, we hosted an event called the Future of Money Summit. And one of our keynote speakers was Bernard Leotar, one of the founders of the Euro. And uh, at the time, he was he was um, he was launching a new currency himself uh, called the Terra, and the the, ter the Terra was a trade reference currency. And this is 2003, so this is, predates Bitcoin and uh, a lot of other attempts. But um, uh, he added he added a real peculiar feature to it. Um, he was he was busy creating all these different currencies for Japan that was looking for um, currencies for like uh, elder care and for child care and things like that, uh, special use currencies that had unique attributes. But when he uh, <clears throat> when he launched the the Terra, uh, it had the the feature of demurrage when demurrage is uh, a holding fee. So it would reduce the value of it by 4% per year um, if you held onto it. So that would, was intended to prom promote circulation as opposed to just being a store of value. And, and that was such an odd uh, feature that uh, the whole project ended up dying because nobody could quite understand how that worked. So, <laughs> uh, um, so as as you research the currency world, I'm sure you've come across lots of uh, unusual uh, attempts to to get this right. Um, so, how is it that um, Satoshi got this figured out um, and, and somehow managed to get all the pieces right the first time? Yeah, so I think that what, you know, I, I well, first, he got everything right the first time because he built a lot of it on the backs of giants. There were a lot of major discoveries that were created over a 40-year period, starting with the cypherpunk movement and moving into, uh, and you know, stem by all of that, major technologies that they built it on top of. What he did is he uh, solved the issue of being able to have all of these parts interact in a way where the incentives align, which you could argue is the hardest part of all of it because right. it's such an incredibly mm -hmm. complex piece. Um, but I think that, you know, it, you know, from a, from a currency perspective, the cypherpunk movement was largely influenced by Austrian economic theory. And when it, it, there, there's kind of two different worlds that you can view this within, it's either money is this payment solution that needs to be in circulation and provides efficiencies within that dimension. And then there's also another world of money as a value storage over time. And it can be used to store value over time and do that most effectively. And we typically see a trade-off between those two things. And I think that when we originated in more primitive forms of money, um, you know, that was the inception of commodity money. 
and commodities are much better at storing value than when we started to transition into this era of paper money. And throughout time, we started to go further and further onto the other spectrum where people were holding money that was depreciating at an annual rate and that did incentivize more spending. And you know, back to the whole concept of time preference, there's these two distinctions between those ideas. And there's the idea that, well, we need to have money circulating in the economy. And then the Austrians say, well, you know, what does that actually, how does that actually affect the behavior of people? Because when we increase their time preference by depreciating the value of their currency, do they spend it on things that they otherwise wouldn't spend it on? Are they yeah. not saving as much as they would normally save? Does it make more sense for them to be taking on more debt then? Is that creating more malinvestment? All these problems start to spur from that. And that is this almost return to this concept of commodity money where it's like, no, the majority of it should be done through a currency that isn't depreciating. It's actually appreciating. And we're storing value over time and we can actually finance our lives through savings. And that changes the way that we think about the world. Now everybody's operating off of this maxim of, I have this form of money sitting in my bank account that isn't losing value over time. And I have a decision every day of if I'm going to spend that I'm going to keep it and consume more tomorrow, or if I'm going to invest it in a risky project that I think might outperform it, in which case I'm probably only going to invest it in things I'm much more confident in, or am I going to spend it on things that I really want, or would I rather save it for tomorrow and has twice as much for those types of things? And it really just changes the value the system of incentives for people. Um, I think that, you know, one thing in my book that I I, I, I try to refrain a bit from some of these more the theoretical, societal, psychological implications. Uh, I My book was written more for like financial folk, and I didn't want to get too much into that theory. I think it's really just like the first few chapters where I'm talking a bit more about theory to give people background. And I, you know, I personally fall into the camp that I think it's good for us to have an appreciating good, but what I think is uh, monetary good. But what I think is more important is for people to be able to choose and for society to actually be able to choose what forms of money that they want to be able to use. And I think that in a world where we, if we were to switch away of, as we've gravitated throughout history to this other end of the spectrum of these depreciating monetary mediums, if we were to go back and we were to revert back to this you know, original understanding and uses of money of a low pri time preference base, um, you know, is that beneficial to society and is that something, is that the world that people want to live in? And I think ultimately we're probably going to end up somewhere in the middle. So a lot of people will say for Bitcoin that Bitcoin is, you know, money and it will consume the market for money. And that's estimated to be somewhere in the three to $400 trillion range. And then what, what I think a lot of people miss in this argument is that, well, credit is also a form of money. In fact, credit was the original form of money before we use commodities for money. Credit is trust. And you know, what's different between credit and a reputation is that credit is enforced by some sort of legal institution and in primitive times is forced, enforced by like a local community. Um, but really this whole concept is derived from delayed reciprocal altruism. If you are going to do a favor for somebody and you aren't going to use money, then you have to trust that that person is going to return the favor to you in the future. And that was the purpose of debt. Well, we could actually loan that amount to you, or we could loan you that good, and we can enforce that you will repay that in the future through a community group of some so, uh, some form. So, um, you know, with these, uh, 
you know, with these different forms of money that were expanding over time. And then we moved into this commodity money and that became the primary form of money. And then we eventually gravitated all the way back to this form of debt-based system. Um, if we revert back to this commodity money-based system, I think that ultimately um, society will benefit, people will get to choose, but a large proportion of that is still going to remain in debt because debt still allows us to serve, uh, it, it serves a valuable function within our economy. Uh, the same way that money, commodity money allows us to bring value forward in time, uh, debt allows us to take value from the future and bring it to the present. It'll just be used a lot more efficiently, and I think the incentives are gonna be much more aligned to eliminate moral hazard within our system. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with all of that. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the potential for Bitcoin to achieve widespread adoption, possibly even consuming the market for money in your words. In response to a question earlier, you said that Bitcoin is the superior money and that ultimately it will displace other forms of money. And in your book, The Seventh Property, you point out that network effects play a big role in the adoption of a good as money. And we're thinking here of commodities specifically, but arguably the same would apply for fiat monies as well. We recently interviewed famed monetary economist George Selgin, and he simply doesn't believe Bitcoin has any real potential to displace the dollar as a global currency because the dollar's network of users is just so much bigger. So what do you think about that? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yep. So it, it, he has a valid point. I mean, we have this structural system that's been implemented um, and it's deeply, deeply entrenched. And we have militaries backing it. We have contracts, international contracts backing it. We have software systems supporting it. For us to be able to move out of that system, I think will take a very significant amount of time and energy. And, um, and, and Selgin is an incredibly bright guy. But what I think, I think that people don't give enough credit to the decisions of the masses at a smaller level and the incentives, the positive incentives that are given to the, the Bitcoin network. So what I mean by that is that when we're in this global US dollar system and we are the world reserve currency and we attain that through our military prowess and through our, and I think you can argue when we raised rates uh, just prior to the Great Depression, that put us in a very strong international monetary dominance position. And we also had a military to back trade routes. And that ultimately made it very evident that we should be the international monetary good. Um, and since then we have been, and that allows us to have what France would refer to as an exorbitant privilege. And what we are allowed to do is we dollars are international currency, 80% or 88% of foreign transactions are denominated in dollars, around 60% of foreign reserves are in dollars. And we can effectively print dollars and we can trade them to other countries. Because countries are conducting their trade in dollars, because their contracts are established in dollars, they demand dollars from us to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do. So we can effectively print dollars, not create a good, not create a service, not create anything. And we can trade that with another economy and they can give us actual capital or labor in return. 
And there's a lot of different ways that you can look at how that affects the global system, who it benefits, who it hurts. Um, you know, a very common example is a lot of these labor-intensive economies like China and uh, India. They are artificially lowering, lowering a lot of their. Well, number one, they have a lot more labor, so the price is lower. But they also yeah. have these artificially low forms of labor that we are exporting, that they're exporting to the globe, particularly the U.S. And when our domestic labor workforce has to compete against that. Well, they can't really do that. And that really makes it hard for our domestic labor force to, you know, continue operating. So we, when we create this environment through, and that, you know, that would be referred to as the Triffin dilemma. And then, but the public corporations benefit from that. And I think it was sourced in one of Ray Dalio's writings. He has this chart. I mean, if you look at the rise since 1971 in corporate profits and the decline in, um, you know, in wages that's occurred, that is very telling of how the system is ultimately benefiting and how it's causing this indirect form of wealth inequality in the U.S. So, you know, that is a system that not everybody likes, number one. Further, if you're an international economy and you have to be dealing with uh, this U.S. dollar system and you're subject to the whims of the decisions of the dollar uh, holders of the world, having an alternative system to opt into is something that is valuable to you. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in real time right now. And it may not even be for all the financial reasons immediately. It might even be for geopolitical reasons. Um, but nonetheless, we're seeing alternative countries say, we don't like to be bullied by you. We don't like to be controlled by you. And we would prefer to opt into an alternative system. And we have Russia and China talking about alternative systems that they want to use. We have the Petro One being adopted potentially by Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have other countries that are all have a common interest of not wanting to be a part of this global game that the U.S. is currently dominating. Um, and, you know, there, there's a really interesting book by Marco Papich of the Clock Tower Group where he goes into a lot of these G. Yeah, he, he's awesome. Yeah, um, awesome. yeah that, is, that is a great book. And, um, you know, and he, he goes into a lot of these concepts. And and I think it's really important because when when you think about this question, it's like, OK, there is the idea that we have this massive incumbent entrenched network effect. And then there's also the idea that there's a bunch of people that would like to find a system to opt out of it. And while I don't think that's something that's gonna happen overnight, I think that uh, some of the irresponsible monetary <laughs> policy of our current leaders, I think that the multipolarity that's emerging in the world and the lack of dominance the US has had over time and how that's continually decreasing in our decreasing our geopolitical influence at a global level, it makes it much more likely every day. And I think that while people are speculating, oh, you know, people, you know, Russia might adopt Bitcoin. Um, I'm not going to say that they may not start thinking about it, but gold is a much more viable system and commodities are a much more viable system for them to be operating off of in the short run. But I think that we're watching this incremental change at a global level where the, the, the idea is that if you are to usurp a, an incumbent network effect that you have to have 10x the technology. And I think that Bitcoin is 10x the technology of our incumbent system. And I think that ultimately yeah. it will. So yeah. it occurs to me it occurs to me that 10, 20 years from now, um, when we do a transaction, we'll be using um, AI to assist us in that transaction. Um, so while the the different countries have adopted uh, currencies for these different purposes. What's the currency of AI going to be ten or twenty years from now? I think that's that's uh, I, I think that's going to be 
determining which which things rise to the top because the de- it'll be depending on which are the most efficient and which have the right attributes for the right right kind of transactions. Can Interesting. You- uh, well, look, I, I I don't know enough about AI, but. What, so I guess I would ask you, when you think about the benefits of AI and the high frequency of transactions, you're referring to that which has a very high efficiency transaction throughput? Right. Um, that and very complex transactions, um, uh, where there might be three or four or five parties involved in um, okay. trading goods, that sort of thing. Okay. Um so I think that a lot of people consider this question by comparing different currencies side by side and saying which one has all the functionality that you would need for this particular environment. And because one currency doesn't serve um, the proper function, that there's going to be a bunch of different currencies that are being used for these different functions. And I think that that is... From my perspective, I don't think that people are really framing that question the right way. I think that it should be framed more from there is similar to how monetary systems have always worked. They've been in layers. So we had, you know, historically we had this base layer of commodity money and that's the truest form of money. But once we had, you know, all the inventions of, you know, we had the printing press and then we, you know, had at a similar time, we emerged the double entry bookkeeping and then we had the telegraph. And then once we had all those three inventions together, paper money was the perfect form of transaction. And the whole idea was that, well, paper money is kind of superior to gold and all these different monetary properties. It's more divisible, it's uh, more portable, we can move it across distances so much more easily. So we, we would be using paper money, but its problem is that it wasn't scarce. So rather than use gold for when we wanna have, you know, gold transactions or use paper when it's gonna be a portable one, we had paper backed by gold. And we had these layers within our system. And I think that we're gonna see a similar logic emerge within our current systems where I think that we're going to look at the baseline and we're going to say, okay, what is the most secure, immutable form of money that you know we can have certainty in if all the world goes to hell and we need to opt out of whatever forms of technology, goods and services, or other forms of uh, transactions we're using. I think everybody would want to opt into something like Bitcoin because it's permissionless, because we can always trade it peer-to-peer between one another, and because it's an immutable system that is has the highest degree of security. So I think that Bitcoin has already kind of won this battle for being like a base layer form of money. I think the next question becomes, well, what's going to be the next layer and how is that going to work? And then some people look at the Lightning Network and they say, well, the Lightning Network has been growing pretty rapidly. That's effectively just a collateralized Bitcoin transaction. Really, your risk on the Lightning Network isn't risk of loss on Bitcoin. It's a risk of loss on time. You could have your Bitcoin locked into a contract longer than you would like. Um, And resolving disagreement within that is not totally perfect yet. And that's kind of one of the flaws that they're working out. But I think that the Lightning Network is a good way of doing high throughput transactions, for example. So like that is another form of money, but they're tied together and they're layered atop of each other as opposed to being these side-by-side competing technologies. Um, 
So I think that we'll have something where it's like, we'll probably find a base layer for Bitcoin being the base layer money. And then we'll have a layer two and might be like a payment layer. And then on top of that, we might be using potentially, there could be lightning for payments of collateralized Bitcoin. There could be certain stable coins that people want to be using. And we could have smart contracts that are utilizing stable coins for those purposes. It could be a form of cryptocurrency that's more interoperable because we want something that can be used in a variety of different applications. Um, but the way that I see, so if you're looking at something for like AI and they need something with very high transaction throughput, then, you know, something like lightning would probably be uh, your best bet. I mean, lightning is much faster than even the visa network, which is completely centralized. So like that, that's pure innovation right there. And what the problem that I think we're seeing with a lot of these alternative cryptocurrencies is that they're trying to innovate everything within the base layer. They're taking base layer money, or not all of them, but the layer ones, obviously, is what I'm referring to. Um, but they're taking the base layer and they're combining all this other utility on top of it. That would be the equivalent of us saying today, okay, we're going to take dollars and we're going to make dollars do everything that Cash App and Venmo can do too. And that's what I think is the problem is we're trying to combine all of these things together that all suffer different trade-offs when we really should be keeping them separate. And then we can say Bitcoin is secure. On top, we can have more experimentation and we can have higher utility <laughs> applications that utilize their own form of money, which is effectively and economically more of a security than it really is even money. Um, and then we can also have high throughput payment channels that people are utilizing and collateralized by our base commodity, or even not that. They could even be debt-based, and people are going to want to have some form of debt, and that'll probably come through like stable coin channels. So I think there's a wealth of applications that'll emerge. I just think the nature in which they're emerging is probably not going to be all at this layer one level that some people are conceptualizing right now. That's a really compelling point. I never thought of the plight of altcoins revolving around the need to take layer two and layer three innovations and cram them into layer one. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, do you think, how do you feel about alternative layer ones? And then what I have in mind specifically is something like Zcash or Monero that has stronger privacy guarantees than Bitcoin does with its default public ledger. G given what companies like Chainalysis or even my company, Elementus, are, are doing with the analytics on the public ledger, you know, pe people are thinking that this is a lot less private than they thought that it was originally. I mean, you know, if, if you understood the technology, you knew it was pseudonymous. So, so there's no surprise here. No, nobody's stealing information that wasn't publicly available, but it turns out you can actually back out more identities than people realize. So have you given any thought to alternative layer ones? And if not, why is it that you think Bitcoin is just gonna reign supreme? So I, I think that you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, when I first went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, the first thing I got led to is Zcash. And I said, privacy, that's a huge thing. That's going to be major. Um, Zcash is superior technology in terms of privacy. In fact, they copied the Bitcoin code. They changed the consensus algorithm to Equihash. And, uh, and they, I think that they're planning to change it to like proof of stake now or something. Um, but that was, that was the very first thing that I was led to as well, is that the privacy is one of, going to be one of the major issues for Bitcoin. Um, there's two, two points to that. So one, Bitcoin has, you know, had soft forks that have enabled its privacy. Um, and I think that we're going to see more and more technologies that are privacy enabling. And the, that question gets incredibly complicated because when we get into the question of the regulatory environment and how that's going to impact all of those decisions. Um, right. But the broadly speaking, 
there's potential for Bitcoin-enabled privacy technologies. We can already see that existing. There's a future for it as well. And I think that a lot of the criticisms you make of Bitcoin's future privacy technologies would also be issues for something like Zcash. Now, if something like Zcash can get to a certain scale, I mean, right now it has... Um, it has a development group and it has a full-time marketing group that's all being financed by a percentage of the amount of supply that there is being inflated. So I think it's like 20% of all new Zcash being created or financing all of these groups. And they have a full-scale marketing team that's trying to get people to adopt it. And this is a key point that I make in my book is that when Bitcoin emerged, there was no competitive environment. There was just Bitcoin. It had time to be slow. It could take six to 10 years to you know, get as big as it did. Now, it's a much different environment. If you are trying to co compete with an incumbent network effect today, then you have to have a marketing team and you have to have a development team and you have to be constantly updating and hard forking your code. And that is fundamentally already changing the nature of your money by simply taking those actions from what something like Bitcoin is. So... What I could see happening is I don't think that there's a lot of people that are going to say, okay, I'm selling all my Bitcoin and I'm going to buy something more private like Zcash. I think there's a lot more people who are going to say, I'll keep holding Bitcoin. It may not be as private right now. There's certain steps that I can take to enable that. And in the future, we might get some more privacy enabling technologies on top of it. But what's really important to me more than anything is that it's immutable and I can store my value in it. And it's that immutability piece. It's huge. And that's the reason I don't think you're going to see a ton of them selling anything for a privacy coin like Zcash anytime soon. But I think that could there be an edge market use case for something like Zcash where it gets a percentage of the base layer money because of those privacy enabling technologies and it gets past this point of being like a startup and being totally centralized? It actually does fundamentally decentralize itself. I think it's possible. The size and scale of that network and whether or not regulators are actually going to be able to crack down on them before that happens is probably the biggest risk. And I think it's a very, very major risk. Um, and once I got to that point, I said, it's possible. I think that we could potentially see edge cases like that exist. Um, but from a risk to reward perspective, if you look this, at this from an investor's eye, eye view, um, I think that you know an investment case like that pales in comparison to what you can look at from Bitcoin that's already kind of got past that point. It can't really be stopped anymore. So that's kind of the whole frame that I'm seeing it within. So you said something about potential upgrades to Bitcoin's privacy in the future. What did you have in mind there? Because I have not researched much of that or heard anything. Well, I was just bringing about the idea of, you know, like upgrading to like snore signatures and some of the privacy enabling tech that would be able to come from that. Um, but I'm not technically deep enough to really like elaborate on how all that works. Um, I'm generally just familiar you know? with how mixing services work and how interoperable that stuff can be with layer two and snore signatures enable some of that. You don't want to bust out math on zero knowledge proofs on the whiteboards in the back there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's what's so funny is some of the technologies that are used in this industry. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people like me out there talking about them, but there's probably very, very few people in the world who fundamentally understand what's going on. Like zero really knowledge it, proofs yeah. are incredibly complicated. Yeah. They are, they are incredibly complicated. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier Um you referenced how certain geopolitical currents now are challenging the dollar's hegemony. It's opening up these seams in uh, just a 
unbroken dominance over the course of about 100 years uh, with respect to the dollar in comparison to other currencies, and that that might be a way for people to kind of begin opting over to an alternative monetary network, because you might see sovereigns do that first. And you know, you and I are not going to be using the Russia-China payment alternative to SWIFT, obviously, but if there is one, if there's a, a yuan petrol system, something like that, then the dollar is automatically weaker, the network effect is smaller, and there's less for Bitcoin to overcome. And one thing I've been thinking about, because I'm in the crypto space myself, is how crypto might be used in war. And that could cash out in various different ways, both positive and negative. For example, we have many stories of Ukrainians escaping the fighting with just 12 words in their head, which correspond to almost all their net worth. We have addresses for Ethereum and, and Bitcoin, which are controlled by the Ukrainian government that have received millions of dollars in donations. And there's also, of course, the possibility that Russia might be able to evade sanctions in uh, small part or large part through crypto assets. How do you think about the potential of crypto in war and its broader potential as a force in geopolitics? So, <clears throat> so I think that the ability to move value permissionlessly is the key piece to focus on here and how that affects war, because war is ultimately the use of violence to stop that. And um, we, with, with the ability to move value permissionlessly at a global, global level, so anybody who's internet or tech enabled and has that ability, I think that when this industry starts to reach maturity, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly powerful because that's going to change the game theory from a global setting. You aren't just thinking as a country, if I'm Russia and I'm trying to invade, you aren't just thinking, well, am I going to upset the US? Am I going to upset NATO? Am I going to have to compete against their militaries at some point in the future? You're going to have to ask yourself, am I going to upset the world? Because with the permissionless payment technology, you can vote with your feet. And if we had a bunch of people that were sitting on a system like this, then we saw, you know, uh, I, what was the total amount that ultimately ended up getting donated to Ukraine? Do you remember? Last I checked, it was 45 million. If I had to ballpark, it, yeah. it's probably 50 now. Yeah. And I think it hit 10 million within like five days. And being able to, you know, move resources that quickly um, to different countries for different reasons really allows this form of consensus about how the world should be structured to emerge. And like that, I think, was one of the biggest things that emerged from these recent events is, you know, I, I had a bit of an epiphany with just how much that's going to change. Um, so if people are doing things in the world that are truly bad, that everybody in the world could see, and unless you can propaganda the entire world at one point in time, people are going to be voting with their feet pretty quickly. And I think that that just totally changes the game theory. I, I think that's true. That's a very compelling answer. But I also wonder if it might not also weaken the ability of a consensus to form, right? Because as it currently exists, we can sanction these countries. Like uh, several sovereigns can band together and say, well, you just can't use the centralized system anymore. And you really feel the, the pinch in a place like Russia as the ruble collapses to an all-time low and the stock market's closed for weeks on end and commodity prices collapse, except oil, obviously. So I wonder if it might not also give truly awful people a way to continue their nefarious operations because they can receive funds permissionlessly from people who support them. Right. It increases the potential for violence. I, I think the distinction is that, um, is that those decisions are being made at a centralized level. 
So I think that there is value. If value is controlled by people, then the decisions are going to be made by people. Those are the, going to be the people voting with their feet versus if something's, somebody's doing something horrible, they might be able to garner support from other leaders who have interests in mind with them, but they're always going to be in direct conflict with the majority of people. And, and I think that's a key distinction. It allows people to vote on war versus governments. So your, your, your book is titled The uh, Seventh Principle. Um, seventh Property. Seventh, seventh Property. What, what is the seventh property? Yep. So as I was referring to earlier, there's kind of like six defined monetary properties. And uh, really when – so going through my review of history, there is this trade that we saw of money for, um, of trust for efficiency. And we kind of saw this trade happen over time. And there, when you look at these primitive forms of commodity money that were originating, you can actually look at them from a perspective of that they were largely decentralized. There's kind of three functions in which you have intermediaries get involved in our monetary system, the production of money, the storage of money, and the verification of money. And that's typically what intermediaries are doing. And if you look at primitive forms of money, all those things were somewhat decentralized. So you would, uh, everybody was producing money themselves within you know smaller localized communities. People were storing money upon themselves, typically wearing them as jewelry, or they were you know had treasure chests or things like that. Um, and they were verifying money amongst one another themselves whenever they were conducting trade. So money in antiquity kind of had these very decentralized properties. And then over time, we started to centralize around those different functions. And the first was, um, the first was being the production of money. And quickly people realized, well, it'd be a lot more efficient if we switched to coinage systems uh, rather than having to, you know, if you look at like the precious metals, for example, when prior to coinage systems, you would go to a market, you would have like an ingot of gold and you'd shave off pieces until it reached the proper weight that you would trade with a merchant for. Um, and people realize, well, what if we just use standardized weights? Because there's a loss every time we do that. You get little pieces of you know gold bits and flakes that come off, and there's this ultimate loss of money that occurs to the transaction. So we started standardizing weights and coinage systems, and then that ultimately led to kind of our very first like moral hazard that you could, or very obvious form of moral hazard that you could see within our monetary systems, um, where merchants would start coin clipping. So they would, merchants were the ones minting these coins, and everybody would start using a common set of coins by different merchants. And merchants would receive a coin in payment. They clip off little pieces of it for themselves. And the next guy they gave the coin to, he would have a slightly less valuable coin, though he didn't know it because he thought it was all the same. Um, and that was an example of moral hazard that would ensue by trusting somebody with a form of production over our money. And, and then governments ultimately, uh, it was, uh, I think it was the kings of Lydia in 600 BC were kind of the first to really monopolize that form of production. And they said, okay, well, if, um, you know, these merchants are taking advantage of you, we should, the government, you should trust us to do it. And the irony is that they ultimately ended up doing the exact same thing. And you see that throughout history. The same goes for storage of money. When you look at England and you look at how wealth was being stored in government mints and it was ultimately appropriated by their rulers from those mints um, and this increased centralization that occurred in storage of money and how that was constantly taken advantage of, um, 
all of these functions centralized over time. And when you trust people with these functions of your money, there are issues that emerge from it. Now, we didn't have any alternatives back then. But today, I think one of the key distinctions with Bitcoin is that it being an immutable form of money where you can, it has, and I define that as immutability is something that's enabled by the decentralized production, storage, and verification of money. You always have that option with Bitcoin. Now, is that ideally how everybody's going to be using it in the future? No, but that's a key distinction because when we were on a gold standard, you couldn't just opt back into gold and start trading gold very easily. It was always centralized. It was much harder to conduct trade with. Uh, it was much more easy for governments to appropriate. Bitcoin has a massive deterrence wall out of it where if people don't like how, whatever's happening in the financial system, they will have the option to be able to opt back into Bitcoin. So because of that, you can say that it's very, the, it's, it's it's a very fundamentally different system, and it's ultimately enabled by this idea that Bitcoin is an immutable form of money. And so I, I, I think that if we going forward in the future, we should be considering immutability to be a desirable property of money. And at least for base layer forms of money, there's different ways you can look at money, but for like a base layer form of money throughout society. Um, and that's that's kind of what I ultimately wrote the book around is like the primary thesis. Yeah, when we 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 interviewed George Selden, and he he said that um, countries in situations like this generally try to muscle their way into uh, the operation of things that are outside of their control, uh, like the internet and like cryptocurrency. Uh, what what do you foresee as the regulatory environment looking like ten years from now? Well, it's a huge question, um, but I <laughs> and, and you have to so, answer it in three words. <laughs> we got to wrap up. We got to wrap up here. Come on. <laughs> I look. I I don't know. I don't think anybody has a very strong answer to this question, but I think it's the biggest risk. And we we just kind of I think over the past month we're watching Bitcoin grow up and we're watching it get into the real world. And we're going to see the ramifications of that question very soon here. Uh, I, I guess answering that question at a very high level, what I like, what I think is important to focus on that people look past is people look at the attack vectors of Bitcoin and they say, how can it, how can either Bitcoin, the network itself be fundamentally attacked uh, by a government or by some sort of competing interest, or how could its ecosystem be attacked? And they're valid ways of looking at Bitcoin. And I'm not saying to neglect them, but I think that what's incredibly important when it's ultimately going to define that question of how this gets regulated, what are the positive incentives of Bitcoin? What is it that would make people not want to attack it in the first place? And I think when you take a very, if you zoom out and you look at the entire world and you say we have an immutable permissionless form of money, and there's a lot of people out there who are very unhappy in the world and they want things to change very significantly and they can opt into this new form of value storage and create economies for themselves and potentially become world leaders in some form themselves. I think that that is an incredibly strong positive incentive. And I think that that is probably probably significant enough to have a competitive environment that deters very powerful incumbent interests of our system to stay away from trying to destroy this network. I love that, that this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything that you would like to leave us with? Any final thoughts? It was, it was fun chatting, guys. Uh, if anybody liked this, uh, give me a follow on Twitter. That's Eric, E-R-I-C, Yakes, Y-A-K-E-S. It's my handle. And pick up the book, The Seventh Property, 
What's the full title? The Seventh Property, Bitcoin, and the Monetary Revolution. You can find it wherever books are sold. All right. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, that was fun, guys. Thanks for bringing me on. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.